Well, again, good morning, Chapel family. If you would, take your Bibles and turn to the book of Titus. We're nearing the end of our study in this brief little letter. Uh, just a couple of more weeks to go. We're in chapter 3 of Titus. Well, the story is told of a man who is visiting New York City. He uh, had tickets to a concert, was trying to figure out how to make his way how to get there, and he saw a man carrying a violin case. And so he went over to the man and said, Hey, can you tell me how to get to Carnegie Hall? And the man's reply was, Practice, practice, practice. I know it's a really old joke and a really bad joke. And you all know it, but um, I say that because the reality is that practice is essential for a musician. It is the practice, practice, practice that builds the neural pathways in the brain that, uh, that brings together all of the dozens of things that have to happen for a musician. All of the muscular movements, all of the placements of hands and fingers and the pitch and the timings and, and everything else that brings it all together with practice, practice, practice it transforms awkward and slow and difficult into things that happen in milliseconds that are fluid and that are graceful. That is practice. Practice manages to take music and move it from something that a musician does to something that becomes a part of who the musician is. The same could be said for athletics, for many other things, how practice, practice, practice is essential. And with a musician I know, I can speak on, on musicians' behalf, they never outgrow the need for practice. Jaska Heifetz, regarded by many as the greatest violinist to ever pick up a bow. He is well known for saying, if I don't practice one day, I know it. Two days, the critics know it. Three days, the public knows it. Now, most of us would probably disagree with that. He could probably go without practicing for a year and most of us would listen and go, whoa, he would especially do that because he's been dead for several decades. But <laughs> you can listen to his recordings. Uh, point is, he says practice is essential. And I have no doubt that for someone of his skill and his level, he could go a day and he would know it. He could tell in the way he played if he didn't practice. Last week, here in chapter 3, we were in verses 1 and 2, and there the Apostle Paul began this section with these two words. He says, remind them. Remind them. Tell them again. Today here in, in verses 3 through 8, he continues with things that we need to be reminded about. Things that we need to continually rehearse, and the word rehearse simply means to tell again, to retell over and over. 
Paul takes us in these verses we're going to look at today, verses 3-8, through eight, he takes us on a, on a little stroll down memory lane. And he rehearses with us our life story. He lays out in the process four things that we need to remember. Four things that I believe if we will rehearse them consistently, if we will rehearse, retell them repeatedly, if we'll do it continually, these things will transform our thinking. They will also transform our life. I think they're that significant. The Apostle Paul, later on at the end of this passage down in verse 8, he will say, insist on these things. That's how significant he thinks these are. These are vital. They're important. So let's look and see what these four things are that he wants us to remember. Begin in verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. The first thing that he calls our attention to that he wants us to remember is he says, I want you to remember our past. Remember your past. He says, for we ourselves once were. What he's going to do here is not give us a nostalgic look at the good old days. No, it's not that. He's not going to give a sentimental song version of the way we were. <laughs> Rather, what he's going to do is lay out an unvarnished, everything exposed in the brilliance of daylight look at your life and my life before Jesus Christ saved us. He gives eight characteristics of what our life was like before Christ. He says, we were foolish. Foolish doesn't mean that we didn't have any knowledge at all. didn't mean that we couldn't have a Ph.D. in nuclear physics or whatever. What it's saying is that we were without spiritual understanding. And we weren't just ignorant spiritually. We were incapable of understanding spiritual truth. Over in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says it this way, that the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God because they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. In other words, without the help of God's Spirit, the, the things of God appear to us as foolishness. And so we end up, as he says over in Romans 1, like folks whose thinking became futile. They became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. He says the person apart from Jesus Christ and you and I before Jesus Christ, we were foolish. We thought we were smart. We thought we were wise. We thought we were super intelligent and yet we were, we were fools. Secondly, he says we were disobedient. We were disobedient both to human authority and to divine authority. As we noted last week up in verse 1, uh, as we were looking there, I, I mentioned we were, we were born rebels. We, we tend to want to do the very things that we know that are wrong. 
And we tend to not want to do the very things that we know we ought to do, that we should do. In fact, I think that very often the the surest way to get people to do something is to put up a sign that says don't. Right? We've all been there. Don't walk on the grass. And we walk on the grass. Wet paint! Don't touch! (laughs) We're rebels. We're born that way. We were disobedient. Thirdly, he says, we were led astray. We were deceived. As I was thinking about that this week, I realized that there are at least three things I could think of in the Bible that deceive us, that have have deceived us. The first is the world system. We were sucked into the lies of the, the world system. The Bible says it this way in the book of Colossians chapter 2. It says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic uh, principles of this world rather than on Christ. It's a warning to us as Christians not to get sucked into, into the world system and the world thinking. But the implication, as a matter of fact, the statement is that before Christ, we were caught up in that. We... We, we, were, we bought into the world system. We drank the Kool-Aid. <laughs> See, the typical, the typical and the basic principles and the, the traditions and the outlook of this world produces a hollow and a deceptive philosophy, a way of looking at life. It's empty, it's hollow, but it holds people captive. It's deceived us. The second thing I see in Scripture that deceives us are the lies of the devil. Jesus said the devil was a liar from the beginning. In 2 Corinthians 4, four it says the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Satan has deceived and blinded the eyes, the spiritual eyes, the hearts of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the truth of the gospel. Thirdly, the Bible tells us that we also are deceived by the lies of our own flesh. The flesh in the Bible is the, the sinful, corrupted way of thinking and the sinful and corrupted desires, the sinful and corrupted living that we have. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12 says, There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. See, not only were we the victims of of deadly deception of lies, but we were also self-deceived. Our own mind, our own heart deceived us. And so we all the time thought we are just fine while we are totally lost. Fourthly, he says we were slaves. We were enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures Understand that sin is a trap that ensnares us. It keeps pushing us on but to where we can't, we can't stop. It controls us. We're driven by, by desire, by, by looking for satisfaction, a longing for satisfaction and for, for uh, fulfillment, for happiness. But sin leaves us empty and guilty and wrung out. And so we... Logically, I say that sarcastically, do the logical thing. We go out and do more. 
leaves us empty, guilty, wrung out, broken. Let's go try that again. We were slaves to sin. We, he says we were malicious. It, he says that, uh, and Jesus said, by the way, I should have quoted him, John chapter 8, verse 34, he says, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. By the way, a couple of verses later, he says, but if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. That's right after he said as well, you will know the truth. The truth will set you free. He says, I'm here, I'm the truth. The fifth thing in this list, it says we were malicious. We passed our days, it says, in malice. Uh, literally, we lived in malice is what it says. We, it defined us. We hurt other people. We, we hurt them both deliberately and we hurt them unintentionally. We hurt them uh, with gossip. We hurt them with slander. We hurt them with backstabbing. We would tear other people down to build ourselves up. We hurt them by using them for our own gain, by using them for our own advancement, by using them for our own pleasure. We were malicious people. He also says we were envious. We lived in malice and envy. Envy. We want what they have. They've got a new house. We want a new house. They've got a new car. We want a new car. We want a nicer car. <laughs> they've, you know, they've got a good job. We want a better job. They have success. We have success. They have friends. We want their friends. They have Recognition. We want recognition. Envy. Envy robs us of joy as it steals any satisfaction with what we already have. As it feeds our lust and our greed to have more, to have whatever it is they have. Envy. It undermines relationships because we begrudge other people the enjoyment and the good fortune of what they have. That leads to the next thing he says. We were being hated. <laughs> Pretty strong word here that just denotes being odious, being repulsive, being disgusting. All of these things make us so messed up that other people can't stand us. <laughs> if that's not enough, he goes on and we were hating one another. It's another strong word that means to detest, to abhor. We look down on other people because they're so rotten, they're so awful, they're so beneath me, they're so, you know, we, we can't stand one another. You look at that list of things, you say, wow, that's a list of some pretty, that's pretty bad stuff. And you know what? I've known people like that. But come on, pastor. That's not me. And that's not my story. Right? I mean, truth is, you and I likely haven't carried out every one of these things to their fullest or their worst expression. And it's easy for us to look around and say, there's a person that's like that. They are foolish and disobedient and led astray. And they're slaves and they're malicious and they're envious and they are hated and they hate other people. And easy to say that's them, but it's not me. But see, Paul says, this is who we were. We were all this way. 
See, while we haven't done all of it, we have committed and carried in our person, in ourselves, the roots of each and every one of these corrupted character qualities. We've carried around the roots of them and, and always they are always these eight characteristics always ready just to sprout, to blossom at any time, any opportunity. There's not a thing on that list that each of us haven't done or been at some point or other in some way is His point. Even those of us, those of you who became believers in Christ as little kids, this still is and was your story. If you doubt that, I challenge you to go downstairs and volunteer to serve in the nursery for a while. You ought to do that anyway, but if you doubt it, go down, check it out. Hang out with some of those precious preschoolers and, and uh, toddlers, even my own grandkids. You'll be convinced after a little while the corruption is there. Every bit of it. Foolish. Disobedient. Deceived. Thinking you're fine when you are really messed up. Slaves to sin. Malicious. Envious. Hated and hating one another. It's all down there in the nursery. Every Sunday. And it's in the society around us. And it is your story. It is mine. Second thing he wants us to remember, verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly, through Jesus Christ, our Savior. He says, second thing you need to remember, you need to rehearse continually, is you need to remember the grace of God. God's goodness and loving kindness appeared, was manifested to you at, at the very height of that list of awful stuff that was true about you and me. God showed up with His goodness and His loving kindness when He should have showed up, or easily, by all rights, should have showed up in His justice and His anger and His wrath. And said, you are a dirty, rotten worm. Squish. Right? That's what I do with spiders and insects. And we were no better. But God showed up with His goodness and loving kindness. And then it says, He saved us. He rescued us. Not because we deserved it. Not because we earned it. Not because we had lots of good deeds. It says here, righteousness that we had done. Not because of our beautiful smile and our awesome personality that God goes, oh, you're such an awesome person. I think I'll just save you. So not because of anything that we had done, but solely because of His grace and mercy is undeserved Unmerited, unearned favor. He saved us. He goes on, he says, He washed us, He 
pulled us out of the gutter and cleaned us up. We sang about it in that old hymn a few minutes ago. It says, love lifted me. I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore. I was going down and you lifted me up. He washed us off, cleaned us up. It says, then it says He regenerated us with the washing of regeneration, meaning He gave us a new birth, a new start at life. He renewed us, He says, the washing of regeneration. He gave us a new life. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says that the one who comes to faith in Jesus Christ becomes a new creation. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Everything's new. It says He gave us the Holy Spirit in verse 6. He does this through the Spirit which He richly, generously pours out on us through Christ. When you became a believer in Jesus Christ, God's Spirit, the Bible says, came to live inside of you. He dwells in you, the Scripture says, richly. Why? To help us to grow, to be more like Jesus. To empower us, to enable us to serve Him. We have the Holy Spirit. Five marvelous things He lists there that God has done for us and in us through His grace. Would you notice that the real focus in those is not us? There's nothing there about what we did. There's nothing there about what we are. There's nothing in there about how we changed and how we were awful, but we are so wonderful now and it's because we worked so hard. It's not about anything we did. It's about everything that God did. It's God's mercy. It's God's love. It's God's sacrifice. It's God's grace. It's His power. It's His work in us. It's He that saved us and He deserves all the glory. Two things he wants to remember. Remember our past. Remember the grace of God. I'm going to stop there for just a minute. There's two more things, but I want to stop there to do something a little different. See, what Paul has called our attention to is what we were, and he called our attention to what Jesus has done. And this morning, what I want you to do is that I want you to write a sentence. A one-sentence story of your life. I was, but Jesus, you know, we sang it earlier in the song. I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore, very deeply stained with Him, thinking to rise no more, but Jesus lifted me. Now, we don't want to use the hymn. I want it to be your story. What Paul has done is laid out generally, here's our whole story. Here's all of us. We were all of these things. But Jesus did this. God's grace did this. But I wonder specifically, what's your story? See, I know for a fact that many of you here are vastly different people today than you were a year or two ago or five years ago, some of you 20 years ago. Some of you here this morning, God rescued you out of drug addiction. Some of you here this morning, God rescued you out of addiction to alcohol. Some of you, God rescued out of immorality. Some of you, God rescued and redeemed out of, of uh, uncontrolled anger. 
Some of you, God, rescued thievery. Some of you from dishonesty. Some of you from loneliness. Some of you out of brokenness. Some of you out of despair. Some of you out of hurt. Some of you out of anxiety. Some of you out of fear. I want you to tell your story. That was this, but God, through His grace, Jesus Christ made this change. He rescued me. Write your story. I want you to finish that sometime this morning. Thirdly, he says, I want you to remember this. I want you to remember your future. Verse 7, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Two things that he notes here about our future. First, he says, we are justified. That's significant. Because you see, what, what we often forget is that every person on planet earth had an eternal destiny. The Bible says it is appointed for man once to die, and after that comes the judgment. We had a destiny to stand before the eternal God, and there there will be an account. And the Bible says, Romans 3.23, we were all sinners. Every one of us, Romans 6.23, the penalty for sin is death. The destiny every one of us faced is standing before God condemned for our sin. And we faced an eternity in hell. The Bible could not be clearer. That was every person's destiny. But <laughs> we were justified by God's grace through Jesus Christ. Justified means declared innocent. So that when we stand before God, we are there and we are declared innocent of all charges. Not because of anything good, but going back to what he said earlier, it's the grace of God through Christ. <laughs> Our eternal destiny is, if, if you're a believer in Jesus, it's no longer hell because you're justified. Instead, and that's the second part here, we, have, we are heirs of eternal life. We have an eternal destiny in heaven. All the glories and joys and blessings of heaven and of a new earth are yours and mine forever and ever as believers in Jesus Christ. Isn't that awesome? Paul says we need to remember that. We need to, we need to rehearse that. We need to remind ourselves of that continually, constantly, frequently. Do it. See, if we remember our future destiny, I will tell you this, if we rehearse that, it will transform our present. Lastly, he says this, remember our purpose, verse, verse 8. This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. I love the NIV says they're profitable for all men. Amen. It's right. God has a plan for our lives. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, He has a plan for you. His plan for you is to live for Him in this world. What He says right here, to devote ourselves to doing good. As Ephesians 2.10 says, to, that He has good works that He prepared in advance for us to do. We are His workmanship in Christ Jesus, created to do good works. We have a purpose 
2 Corinthians 5.15 says this. It's one of my favorite verses. It is the right, it is the, the natural response to the grace of God. It says this, 2 Corinthians 5.15, And He died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. Paul says, insist on this stuff, Titus. This is important stuff. Don't neglect it. Don't miss it. Remind ourselves of these things. Remind them of these things. It's important because when we really, truly live for Jesus, as we live good and gracious and godly lives, the result is, as we noted last week, if you are here last week in the first two verses, the result is that when we live like that, even in the midst of a pagan culture, even in the midst of a hostile culture, we make the good news about Jesus attractive. Paul has just retold our story, our life story as believers. He says that these things are good and they're profitable for all people. In other words, there's great value in continuing to remind ourselves of these things and continuing to tell our story. When we rehearse, when we retell our story, great things happen. God is honored and glorified for His grace in saving us. We are transformed. When we retell our story, it motivates us as we look at our, the awful mess we came out of. It motivates us that we don't ever want to go back there. And it moves us and encourages us to live holy, godly lives. When we remember His grace, it helps us to love Him more. When we remember our future, we find comfort and we find strength and encouragement and courage. And we remember our when we remember our purpose, it helps us focus, stay focused on the mission. We're transformed. When we tell our story, believers, other believers are encouraged. Whenever you hear somebody else's story, you're encouraged. This morning in the first service when some folks shared their story, my heart was stirred. It was encouraged and strengthened. Fourthly, when we tell our story, unbelievers are pointed to Jesus. So I ask, What's your story? Some of you may not still have a blank card because you just thought, well, I'll do something later. That's okay. I encourage you, though, don't let this day go by without filling out the card. It would be something to practice up for, get ready for Thanksgiving. Next week we have a Thanksgiving service downstairs. A week and a half you're going to be sitting around the table. Maybe some folks there don't know Jesus. Share your story. Please never underestimate the power of your story. See, in our messed up thinking, we think that uh, the vilest sinner, you know, the worst slave trader captain, John Newton, <laughs> is worse than the 10-year-old or 5-year-old sinner. The reality is all sin is deadly sin. And it gripped us all. It's all of our story. So whether you were saved at 5 or 10 or whether you're saved at 55 or 85, you need to remember your story. You need to rehearse it. You need to tell it. And I encourage you to write it down so you're ready. I talk to lots of folks and they know that we should be sharing Christ with, with folks, but they say, I just don't know what to say. 
Well, you don't have to to tell them Genesis to Revelation, the whole thing. You just tell your story and you can do it in one sentence. I was. But here's a change Jesus made in me. He saved me. You know, that personal testimony is a powerful thing. If I was dying of cancer and I'm up late, I can't sleep and watching TV and as always happens late night, you know, suddenly they're on there saying, we just found a pill that cures cancer. If you send in 1995, you know, <laughs> we'll send you this and it'll cure cancer. And, and uh, they parade doctors and celebrities across and then, you know, and today we'll double the offer. We'll send you twice, you know, for and all that. Would you be skeptical? Sure. We don't believe any of that stuff. And they can, they can put every doctor in the world going across the screen and every celebrity and we're going to go, yeah, I don't think so. But if you, my dear friend, is also dying of cancer, and one day you come up to me and you say, Keith, I found this medicine. It's one pill. I took this one pill. And you won't believe it. My cancer is gone. You know what? You've got my undivided attention. So it is with your story. You may not be able to answer everybody's questions and you may not be able to tell everything that maybe everybody ought to know, but you can tell one thing. You can tell your story. So I encourage you, write it down. Go over it again and again and again. These things, he says here, this will transform you. This will change you. Might be, just I have to say as we wrap it up, you could be here this morning. You had trouble writing something down on the card. There may be one of a couple of reasons why you might have trouble writing something down on the card. One is you might have trouble writing down your story of how Christ changed you because you've never come to know Him as your Savior. If that's you this morning, I want you to know this. God loves you so much He sent His one and only Son to die for you. And if you believe in Him, you can have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And He invites you, He calls you to trust in Jesus as your Savior. Right now, right today, right even where you are. And it begins a whole change and it begins a whole story that will continue being written until the day He comes back. You might also, though, be having trouble writing something down because maybe you trusted Jesus as your Savior some time back, but sometime over the last months or years, you walked away from Jesus. You keep wearing the T-shirt, but inside, you don't have any love for Jesus. You're not following Him. And it's hard to write a card saying how He's changed your life when you really are so far away. I just want you to know, if that's your case this morning, today's the day to make that right. He's calling to you to change direction. The word the Bible uses is repent. <laughs> and come back to following Him. Let's pray. Father, thank You for loving us. Thank You for loving us so much that despite what we were, and while we think, we look at ourselves and we think, or we thought, you know, I'm a pretty decent guy. The reality is we were corrupt to the core. 
And it manifested in all of these things that we saw. We thank You that so you loved us so much that in Your grace You reached down to us and offered forgiveness and offered new life, eternal life through Jesus. Lord, sink that reality deep into our hearts today. May we rehearse it, go over it again and again so that we are never the same. So that it impacts and it affects every thought, everything we do throughout the rest of our days. And that You in the process as we remember and rehearse these things, You will change us so much that we'll begin to look like Jesus. We'll begin to be a reflection of Him so that when the folks in our neighborhood and the folks that are the, the folks next to us at work or at school, wherever they are, when they look at us, they'll see some of who Jesus is. And it will intrigue them and they'll want to know who Jesus is because they see You in us. And then, Lord, may we have the privilege of sharing with them our story. And may even then we see those folks come to faith in Jesus. Lord, how we want to see our friends and neighbors have eternal life and a relationship with You. So make us faithful to retell and rehearse our story. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.